Does limiting law education to the Ghana School of Law effectively promote better legal practice in the country? There is an ongoing debate over whether law education should be liberalized in Ghana. Some established lawyers, such as Ghana's former Chief Justice, Sophia Ekufo, has defended the status quo, whereas other practicing lawyers have challenged the nature of law education. After years of high failure rate, including a failure rate of 93% on the Ghana School of Law entrance exams in 2019, the debate has intensified. A variety of explanations have been proposed. Poor educational requirements and preparation for undergrad law students, a poor and opaque exam process, or a purposeful conspiracy to prevent the creation of new lawyers and limit competition among lawyers. Today's host, Peter Pena, has a conversation with Prince Ganaku about law education in Ghana. Prince is an alumna of the Faculty of Law at the Ghana Institute of Management and Public Administration, GIMPA. He is also the former president of GIMPA's Law Student Association. In this position, Prince worked to convene the Association of Law Presidents with the purpose of converting that association into a truly national association of law students. The failure rate of 93% of Bachelor of Law holders who took the Ghana School of Law entrance exams in 2019 provided the immediate impetus to form the Ghana National Association of Law Students. This is Leaders' Voices from Leaders of Africa a podcast where we discuss African leadership from the perspective of thought leaders, shaping politics, economics, education, and on this episode, liberalizing law education. You cannot become a lawyer. and You've gone into an institution, paid exorbitant school fees, perhaps even put your life on hold. Perhaps you had a life plan. People wanting to get married, people wanting to start a family. And all of that has just is suddenly in limbo because you don't know what next you don't know what is going to happen to you many experts claim that more law expertise is required in ghana but high entrance exam failure rates have prevented the advancement of aspiring lawyers hi my name is peter and my guest prince ganaku joins me from ghana to speak about law education and activism Prince, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Tell us a little bit about Ghana National Association of Law Students. When did it start? What is its background? When I was elected president of the Law Students Association at GIMPA, I felt like the regulation of legal education in Ghana had a lot of people, but none of those people were law students. And I also felt like there were a lot of things going on inside the legal education space that we could work on but the people at the top were too far removed from you know the experiences of students and so they wouldn't be able to understand what was going on i felt very very strongly that we needed to have a united front where the leaders of this united front would be represented on you know whatever council or board that regulates legal education in this country so the first thing that i did was I convened the Association of Law Presidents. Now, the Association of Law Presidents is a group of all the presidents of the associations in all the law faculties in the country. I didn't begin it. It happens every year. And so during my time, I got together all the presidents and put them all in one WhatsApp group. And then we met a number of times to discuss ways that we could organize into a truly national body unfortunately we were all very much preoccupied with the things going on in our respective associations that we could never you know finalize the plan to organize then we handed over our, the, the reins of our respective associations to our successors and then we went and wrote our entrance exam which is the ghana school of law entrance exam weeks after we wrote the exam the results were published and we were told that 93 percent of all those who had written the exam had failed or had failed to meet the pass mark. Of course, we immediately recognized the opportunity that this presented to us because organizing students is in itself very, very difficult because individual students do not feel strongly or do not typically feel strongly enough about anything to participate in you know, broad or mass-based groups such as the one we were trying to organize. But we saw the opportunity and that we saw that this was something that was very, very unfair. This was something that 
a lot of students felt very, very strongly about. And so we took the opportunity and then, you know, we met with opinion leaders and all the faculties who communicated, you know, this information to their constituents. And then we started with one WhatsApp group, literally a day after the results were published. I spoke with my colleague who, who approached me with this idea and this was around 9 p.m. on the day that the results were published. By the next morning, she had formed the WhatsApp group. And then there were about 100 people by the time that I woke up. By afternoon, we had about 900 to 1,000 people. We had so many people that WhatsApp couldn't contain us. So we had to move to Telegram. And then from these groups, and we organized for the purposes of a mass peaceful protest. And then... It just, you know, it just carried on from then. Since then, we, the four people that had the first conversation about forming a national association of law students and organizing for a demonstration post the publication of the results, have functioned as the de facto leaders of, you know, the national association of law students. So essentially what it is, is a group of all the law students in the country recognizing a group of people as their leaders for the purposes of fighting for reforms in legal education and defending their interests. So how many current members do you have now? And how do you regulate that membership? Is it sort of open membership in terms of joining Telegram platform, for example? Or do you have a formal process of membership that has evolved or is planning to evolve over time? You could draw an analogy between a confederation and the National Association of Law Students. What we did was make sure that we got the leaders of all the associations to buy into this idea that they have to cede a bit of, if I may use this word, a bit of their sovereignty to the National Association of Law Students and recognize that we were the body that were going to defend the interests of all law students in the country. So simply by being a member of your association, if they have signed on to be a part of the National Association of Law Students, you are automatically a member of the National Association of Law Students. You, there is no formal process that an individual law student needs to go through to become a part of. And whether or not you are on social media or you're on Telegram or you're on WhatsApp, that is not a determinant of whether you're a member of the National Association or not. As long as you are a member of a law student's union or a law student's association that has signed on to become a part of the National Association of Law Students, then you are by default a member of the association. So how easy or difficult has it been to mobilize law students? And I'm particularly curious about those who actually passed in that year, so the 7% that did. Do you have support from them as well in some of your efforts? Yes, as a matter of fact, we do. So you remember I mentioned a friend of mine who I was talking to at 9 p.m. on the day the results were released. She passed the exam. She was a member of my association at Gimpa, and so I was her president. And so she literally just texted me and said, what are we doing about this? And I was like, did you make it? And she said, yes, I made it. But what are we doing about it? For me, that was very, very, it was very inspiring. The fact that this wasn't her fight, but she was the one that came to me first with the idea. And so, yes, since then, we don't have the support of all of them because there are those who are afraid that by engaging or participating in our activities, they might be targeted or victimized. And so they prefer to sit back or support silently or support financially without you know, actively participating. But the truth is that of the 7%, more than half are in support and have, you know, have supported one way or the other. So now I'm curious about what sparked your interest in law and what areas of law do you hope to practice in? I have always been aware, haven't been told by a number of people that I would make a good lawyer. It's something that was always, I always heard when I was growing up, particularly because I liked to talk. I liked to argue just for the sake of it. It's something I do for fun. And so Everybody was like, oh, you have to be a lawyer. You're going to be a good, good lawyer. When you're going from high school and you're picking the courses that you're going to study in university, it is always good to pick something that you're already good at or you have the aptitude for 
and the law was one of those things and so it, it was just a natural progression you know from my high school to go and study political science and then come back and, and study the law so yes and my interest was peaked my father figure was my uncle and he had some legal troubles when vicarious liability when he was sued by a big corporation for something that one of his employees did and i thought it was very very unfair and i pushed him to fight it he eventually lost the case but i found it so unfair that if there was any possibility that i was going to pursue another career apart from law it was effectively ex extinguished from that point as to what type or what branch of the law i want to practice in i want to practice the law yes i want to be a litigator yes but my key interest really is in legal education i want to be an academic i want to teach commercial law i want to teach company law i want to teach contract law so basically those parts of private law that involve commercial transactions are what really resonates with me mostly because of the events that ossified or, or crystallized my my interest in the law you mentioned legal education the national association of law students speaks about opening up legal education what does this mean exactly? So first, you have to understand how legal education works. To become a lawyer, there's a two-stage process that you have to go through. First, or sometimes it's three. First, you have to get your LLB. So you have to be awarded an LLB from an accredited institution in this country. Then from there, the law that governs legal education says, by virtue of the award of the LLB, you are automatically qualified to proceed to the professional level. Now, the professional level is, if I can just use this example, if the LLB or what you learn at the LLB stage is the substance of the law, at the professional stage, what you're learning is things like deadlines, how to manage a law firm, how to draft, you know, a conveyance. And, you know, those are the the things, procedural things, criminal procedure, civil procedure, what you have to, you know, what timelines you have in the high court, what, you know, what courts you have to go if the value or the subject matter of your, your case is worth maybe 30,000 CDs or 50,000. Those are the things that are, you know, broadly what you study at the professional level. So at the LLB stage, you are taught the substance of the law, which is what most people think about when they think lawyers. People think, lawyers know the law and that is what you learn at the llb stage once you are awarded your llb you are qualified to um, go to the professional stage what is happening right now is that this bifurcated model was created at a time where there was only one law faculty in this country which was at the university of ghana legal now since about 2004 i think the national accreditation board under the watchful eye of the GLC, has accredited, I think, approximately 15 law faculties. And yet, there is still only one Ghana School of Law providing the professional law course, which has created sort of a bottleneck. Because you have all of these people that are qualified, if we are going to go strictly by the legal regime. That says that if you have an LLB, you are qualified to go, but you have only one Ghana School of Law that has a finite amount of space. It cannot take all of these people. The Ghana School of Law has never taken more than 530 students at a time. And yet you have over 2,000 or 1,500 students graduating every year from 15 law faculties. That is what the problem is. What we are essentially saying is that the bifurcated model does not make sense because you are essentially creating a backlog. So let's say you have a capacity of only 500, all right? 1,500 have risen in 2010. Only 500 have gone through. That's created a backlog of 1,000. Those 1,000 people want to be lawyers. So they are going to write in 2011. Now, if they join another 1,005 in 2011, that brings us to 2,500. You're going to take only 500. Now you have a backlog of 2,000. And it will only keep multiplying. And so all you are doing is that you are restricting the numbers. The exam itself is not a test of of competence. That's not what the exam is designed to do. It's not designed to test your knowledge of the law. The exam was only instituted because there were two, well, this was in 2012. I think there were two law faculties already producing too many. 
And the regulators felt like, okay, fine, we have to find a system to determine who gets to go in. And this system is not about competence or merit because the mere fact of your holding the LLB means that you are competent to go. So the thing was, the exam was never about competence or merit. It was only about figuring out of the 1,005 that are there, how many are going to go in. You understand? We are saying that for too long, the dreams of too many students have been denied because the regulator sought a short-term um, solution instead of finding a long-term solution. So all we are saying is that abolish the bifurcated model. There is no reason why the things that are taught at the professional level cannot be taught by the faculties. And when we are done with all of that, the students or the graduates from this unified legal education regime can go and take a bar exam, which is what you take before you become a lawyer. And it doesn't matter how difficult this bar exam is. It doesn't matter. We don't care. We understand the need, the importance of quality assessment. Okay. We understand. But you cannot put this bottleneck, you know, in front of, or this barrier in front of students who are qualified by the same law that governs the, the regulator. So that is the essence of what we are fighting against. So one of the things you just mentioned was this issue of the oversupply of lawyers. And so one of those reasons, and you mentioned that, that is cited for restricting legal practitioners is the fear of competition and the potential for this overproduction of lawyers. And in some countries, you do see this phenomenon where undergraduate students pursue law as a default option, and sometimes the job market becomes oversaturated. But is this fear valid in your view? No, I don't. I, I, I wouldn't say that this fear is valid at all. <laughs> With respect to the regulators, it is probably the weakest arguments that they have put forward, honestly. Because if legal practitioner Kwame Jan is to be, be believed, he gave us the numbers. He says there are only about 3,000 lawyers in this country and 900 of them are in Accra. That is what he said. If we are not even going to believe what he's saying, if you go to Attorney General's, the Attorney General's department, it is criminally understaffed. It is so understaffed that the police are the ones who prosecute people. If you go to legal aid, I think there are only about 30 lawyers serving the whole of Ghana at legal aid. If there was an even distribution of lawyers in Ghana, we are about 30 million people. In this country, 30 million divided by 3,000. If there was an even spread of lawyers in this country, you'd have one to 10,000. One lawyer serving every 10,000 people. But there isn't an even spread of lawyers in this country. In fact, majority of the lawyers are resident in Accra, which means that in certain parts of the country, you could have an entire township or municipality or district having only one lawyer. And yet people are caught and prosecuted and jailed in these towns and, and, and districts and, and, and villages all the time. So it is absolutely not the case that there is a fear that we might, you know, the job market might become saturated. It is not true. We are a long way from getting to that point. It, it really, really isn't true. Let me just get that out. It is factually inaccurate. Turning to established lawyers that are currently practicing law today, what has been their response to your activism and advocacy work? Well, it's been mixed. It's been mixed. There is a very important law, a lawyer who runs one of the biggest law firms in this country. And we went to his office. He invited us to the office of another incredibly important lawyer and a politician. His name, both of them, I, I can mention your names, is Gabi Ochridakon and Wagus. So we met these two. And once we got into the office, Wagus let us know that, listen, he's not impressed with the current crop of lawyers that are being churned out. He's not. And he takes the view that all that we are saying is, is not true and that we just want an easy ride because he has had experience with, with junior lawyers. He can tell us for a fact that the quality isn't great. And so he's absolutely in support of, you know, whatever is going on. So he let us know from the outset what his position was. But he saw that one of his good friends, who he knew was very, very smart, was, you know, one of our number. And 
the mere fact of her presence in our midst means that perhaps something else is going on and so he's going to give us the opportunity to convince him and he threw everything at us every question you could possibly think of he played devil's advocate right to the end and then when we were done he and the other lawyer gabio tridacon admitted that we did in fact have a case the reason I've, I've told you this story is because i'm just trying to illustrate the fact that the reaction is only mixed because those who support the status quo do not understand what is going on once we are able to explain to them once we are able to let them know that listen forget what you know listen this these are the arguments we are making everybody does not understand why you know, the system is the way it is. But then again, we are limited in that we can't reach every single lawyer in the country. But I, I, I can tell you that I haven't met a single lawyer and I've met many. I haven't met a single lawyer, including the president's chief of staff, who has said that they are not in support of what we are doing or they don't understand why we are doing what we are doing. None. We haven't met and spoken to any, any lawyers in this country who have you know continued their opposition to us after speaking to them those who are are still opposing us are either the decision makers or people who have not paid attention and have dismissed out of hand what we are saying without giving it any thought so you've kind of alluded to this already but what are some of those forces that are preventing the liberalization of the law sector, including law education, as you've described earlier. Some would say that the GLC is one of those forces. I don't know if I can say the GLC full stop. I can say that outgoing Chief Justice, um, her ladyship, Madame Sophia Akufu, is the main proponent of the current status quo. And for some reason, she, she appears intent on painting, you know, what is going on as a fight where she is the one in defense of standards within the legal profession. And on the other hand, we are intent on diluting those standards within the legal profession. And if the anecdotal evidence that I have received is to be believed, because she is the chairperson of the general legal council the other members of the council are reluctant to sort of go against her and really the glc is one of the most powerful bodies in this country it is made up of four of the senior most supreme court justices the president of the ghana bar association appointees of the presidents the attorney general these are incredibly powerful people in this country and so if a body that is constituted by these powerful people say that they are not going to change the status quo then we know that we have quite the fight on our hands so we know that the failure rates on the entrance exam are very high last year the figure was over 90 percent specifically 93 percent this means that less than one in ten test takers succeeded what is the cause of this high failure rate is it the quality of legal education? Is it the difficulty of the exam? Is it the content of the exam or perhaps something else? So is it the quality of legal education? No system of education is perfect. And so I, I can't say that legal education in Ghana is free of its problems. Uh, we have our own problems here. That's true. But as an explanation for the 93% failure rate, the quality of legal education, the quality of legal education, okay, it does not suffice as a reason for that. So that's the first thing. Legal education in Ghana is not perfect, but it is not so bad that 93% of LLB holders, some of which include first-class students in Gimpa, one of the people who didn't make it, made a record-breaking GPA. And this happened across all the, the faculties. Some of the best students missed out. So it, it is not possible that is the quality of legal education. It, it really isn't. Another reason why it is not possible that is the quality of legal education, or at least let me say that the regulators cannot put forward the quality of legal education as an explanation, is also the fact that 
there's a joint task force constituted by the general legal council and the national accreditation board which conducts regular inspections at law faculties across the countries in the interest of maintaining standards okay they request the inspect course outlines they inspect the cvs of lecturers they inspect the publications of lecturers they inspect sample examination scripts among others and so it is not possible that it is the quality of legal education that because they have done all this and they have passed all the faculties as meeting the required standard so the quality of legal education arguments does not suffice the second possible explanation that you gave was whether the exam itself was difficult when i was going to get my license at the driving school the very very first day i was shown where the the accelerator and the brake are and what the gears do etc etc i was shown where the carburetor is all of that the exam that we wrote this year is what you study well the, the highest scoring question of the exam is what you study within the first 30 minutes of your first day at law school it is sources of law every single law student in this in this country can rattle the sources of law for you without more they can tell you what the sources of law in ghana are this is because you don't just learn it in the first 30 minutes of your first lecture it forms the basis of everything else that you do so when you go into company law you are taught the sources of law when you go into law of equity you are taught sources of law it is something that occurs in almost every course that you study during your llb and so i want you to cast your mind back to when you were an undergraduate the most fundamental thing underpinning your course right the thing that nobody forgets the thing that is probably the equivalent of the national anthem for everybody in your class that is what we studied and so if it is impossible for 93 percent of licensed drivers to point where the brake is or where the accelerator is it, it is impossible for 93 percent of law students to not know what the sources of law in ghana are it is impossible so it, it the, the exam was not difficult there is no other way to explain it to somebody outside ghanian legal education how easy the question is other than by analogy to the person's own course it was not difficult it wasn't difficult at all so it couldn't have been the difficulty of the exam now let us look at the plausibility of the 93 percent figure okay Let's look at some of the world's most difficult exams. Let's take the CFA exams. Certified Financial Analyst is widely considered one of the most difficult exams in the world. It has an average pass rate of 46%. And the lowest ever pass rate is 34% out of more than 21,000 who took the exam. Now let's go to the California Bar exam. I did a bit of research. It's on the internet. It apparently is one of the most difficult bar exam in the United States. It has never had a failure rate exceeding 72%. Now let's go to the UK. The, the UK's equivalent of our professional you know, law course. It's called the, the Bar Professional Training Course, the BPTC. Be each year, between 2009 and 2018, approximately 3,000 people applied to take the professional bar training course. So they, they, they wrote the entrance exam. Of that number, each year, approximately 50% were enrolled. And of those enrolled, each year, approximately 70% completed the course to become barristers. In Nigeria, 80% of all students who took the Nigerian bar exam passed and got called to the bar. It is not the case that Ghanaian law students are so bad that they are performing worse than people who are taking the world's most difficult exam. It is not the case. Okay, so it is simply implausible. Now, if you were an academic, there's a normal curve when you plot exam statistics on a graph. There's a normal curve that your, your exam statistics should follow, all right? It's, it's always in a bell curve. You have a small minority doing exceptionally well. You have a small minority failing and the large majority in the middle passing. Where the exam statistics do not follow this curve when plotted on a graph, then the students are automatically not the problem, okay? It is possible that the exam question itself was wrong. It is possible that the marking scheme was wrong. It is possible 
that there is something going on where people are trying to restrict others from passing the exam. Whatever the possible explanations are, the students are automatically not the problem. So I, I can't tell you what is going on. We have speculated, we have said, well, the Ghana School of Law has a capacity of more than 500. Reforms at the Ghana School of Law. We are those trying to enter the Ghana School of Law. Reforms at the Ghana School of Law have ensured that there is a backlog of about 300 failed students. Keep in mind, the Ghana School of Law has never taken more than 530 students. So for that reason, let's say it has a capacity of 530. Of that 530, 300 have already taken up the slots because they have been repeated. That leaves space for only 230 and magically only 128 Ghanaian students have passed, leaving space for what around 102 students coming from abroad or haven't taken their LLB or haven't been called to the bar elsewhere. So we can see that there is something going on. We don't know what exactly is going on, but we know that 93% of students did not fail that exam. And all we are saying is that the regulator is saying that we have failed. The students are saying that they have not failed. Okay, fine. Women lie, men lie. Publish the marking scheme, all right? I know if you say the marking scheme is 1 plus 1 is equal to 2. I know I wrote 2. The marking scheme says the answer is 2. Okay, publish the marking scheme and allow for those who feel strongly about their scripts to go for remarket, to have their scripts remarked because it is very, very possible that you have made a mistake. Instead, ahead of the exam, all those who applied to take the exam were made to sign a document that they would not contest the results of the exam, which is illegal in this country. And yet you have a body superintended by some of the best legal minds in this country, superintending over a system where before you are allowed to take an exam over which they hold a monopoly, you are made to sign away your rights to contest the results under any circumstances. This is what is going on. And so if truly we are terrible students, the quality of legal education is bad. If the exam was difficult and we failed, whatever it is, there shouldn't be a difficulty for, you know, the, the individual students to apply for remarking. And we went into a meeting with the Constitutional and Legal Affairs Committee of Parliament a few weeks ago. And there was something that our lawyer said, our counsel said, she said, there is something to be said about the psychology of guilt. Because if you haven't planned something ahead of time, why would you take you know, steps to ensure that students would not be able to challenge the results? You are listening to Peter's conversation with Prince. In the second half, they discuss the potential reasons for the high failure rate on the entrance exams and the psychological effects of failing the exams on aspiring lawyers. So it sounds like there's an important emphasis here on transparency of the process, transparency of the grading scheme, transparency of one's individual mark. Would you say that that's a really important step in this process in terms of interrogating and uncovering what is behind this high failure rate? It is not just an important step, it's a critical step. And it shouldn't be done behind closed doors. It has to be done for all to see. Transparency, as you have said. We want this done publicly. The marking scheme should be publicly available. If we don't stress all of that and we just say they should go back and remark the scripts, there is nothing to stop them from coming back and saying even fewer people have passed. So transparency of the process is not just important, it is critical. So one of the things you mentioned earlier was the complaint by some established lawyers that junior lawyers that are coming out right now are of poor quality. How does this 7% relate to that? Are those 7% of any better quality? Has this process of screening led to any better quality lawyers? It seems to suggest that it hasn't really overall, the screening process. This exam has been in place since 2012. Since 2012, there have been more than five documented instances of the Chief Justice complaining about the standards of new lawyers. Now, the exam was introduced in 2012, presumably, or at least the, the stated rationale for the exam has been that the, the quality is going down. So there's a need to put a filtration system ahead. Not only have the best students from the faculties missed out, even at the Ghana School of Law, people are failing. Now, it stands to reason that if the exam 
was truly there to ensure that only the best of the best get into the Ghana School of Law. The Ghana School of Law will not be seeing a failure rate of 70%, leading to a backlog of 300 students. So, quite simply, you don't need to do a forensic audit of the process to see that it is evident that it is not working. The current system is not working to ensure quality. If it was ensuring that the right quality comes out, since 2012, we would have seen improvements. At least, we would have seen improvements from their perspective because they were the ones complaining about the quality. We weren't sitting in our homes complaining about quality. They were the ones complaining about quality and, and for which reason they instituted the exam. And if the exam was truly you know, a quality filtration system, we would see the, the results by now. It's been seven years and they are still complaining about the same things. So clearly it doesn't work as a quality filtration system because it never was about filtering quality. The quality filtration argument is an afterthought. It is something that is being introduced to defend the status quo. It is not about quality. It never was about quality. It was always about restricting the numbers because the regulator did not take the steps to ensure a sustainable progression or a sustainable means of overseeing the progression from the LLB level to the professional level. So I want to take a little step back here and think about that high failure rate and how it has affected those who have failed. And one of the things that has really struck me was a picture on your Facebook of a lady who is holding a sign that says, just because I didn't pass this exam, I am not a failure. So I'm curious about this psychological toll that this has taken on some of the young and brightest Ghanaians in the country who are aspiring to be lawyers. What is that toll? How has that made some people feel? People were in tears. For me, look, for me, there has never been a time in my life where I ever doubted myself. I never go into any you know, situation thinking there is a possibility that I will not be good at this or there's a possibility that I'll fail at this. Probably because I have always been in my comfort zone. I've, I've always been a talker. I've always been a reader. I did arts-based courses. And so I never did a science-based course. And so, you know, I never challenged myself in, in that regard. So for that reason, I'm incredibly, you know, comfortable in my skin as, you know, an extremely competent person. And I'm not even the most competent person in my school. I'm not even among the top 50 most competent people in, in my school. There are people that are, you know, way, 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 way more competent than I am. And even then, for a week, I, I didn't know what to do with myself because then, if you have an LLB, right, if you don't do the professional law course, you you are stuck as a, maybe a paralegal or as a teller, as a bank teller or, you know, in some office management. You cannot become a lawyer. And you've gone into an institution, paid exorbitant school fees, perhaps even put your life on hold. Perhaps you had a life plan, people wanting to get married, people wanting to start a family. And all of that has just is, is suddenly in limbo because you don't know what next you don't know what is going to happen to you there are people who quit their jobs for this and they don't know whether they, they should go and find another job or wait until next year right again and in the meantime what are you going to do how are you going to survive you know people won't get this opportunity again it's insane like some of the people that I looked up to some of the people that, you know, academically that I looked up to some of the people that I went to for help. I had a friend in whose room there were just printouts of notes and, and lectures. And what is he going to do with his life? He doesn't know. His life is in limbo. That is what you're, we are observing across the board for, especially for, you know, the mature students who were either employed or had to quit their job, you know, to take this course. It's incredibly disheartening especially because this year's exam was very very easy and you don't know what is going to happen next year because the chief justice by her or trances seems intent on maintaining the status quo so you don't even know what is going to happen next year whether next year an even fewer number are going to be passed etc et it's not a great place um to be luckily for me my future is in academia and so if I'm able to, say, apply for my master's, I, I could very easily become a lecturer in this country. But it's not the same for other people whose entire lives have depended on 
you know, successfully going through the system. It, it really isn't. It really, really isn't. And if you look at the structure of the exam, there are 10 to 14 courses that you have to study for. And you study for a two-hour paper. One paper, not a paper for each course or... So if you're doing contract law, constitutional law, natural resources law, you don't have a paper for each of those. No, you have one two-hour paper from which, you know, the questions could come from anywhere. And so preparing for this exam itself is psychologically draining for most people. And then they, they do their best. They go in, they write the exam, they believe they have successfully discharged the requirements of the exam. And then it comes out and they have failed. It is said that they have failed. There is no paper that we ever wrote at faculty level that was easier than, you know, what we wrote for the Ghana School of Law entrance exam. And then they are going to have to go through this studying the 10 to 14 courses all over again. It's, you would have to speak to some of them to truly understand what is going on in the minds of most people. But it's, it's, it's crazy. Some of the strongest people I, I know broke down in tears and some of them I haven't heard from since you know the publication of the results and nobody knows where they are it's 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 really 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 difficult it's really difficult so what are the job prospects of those who did not pass you've mentioned some are interested in lecturing such as yourself some may entertain the possibilities of getting involved as a PR illegal what are those opportunities look like and for those that you know what have they tried to do in terms of putting together their career again those that i know there was this one who is currently a ta at gimpa the younger students who are just taking the llb for their first degree have to go and do their national service and so there is at least a stopgap measure but for those who quit their jobs for this or you know put their lives on hold for this i don't know because it's not as though the job market in ghana is great in the first place and so finding a job already is difficult some of my friends are waiting until next year one of them has found a stopgap job and she will write again next year and if she passes then she will quit the job if she doesn't pass then she'll continue i think that's it for the options are basically three you either do your national service you take a stopgap job or you just wait at home for next year and then you try again and then there's a fourth option available to those who want to lecture by going to do their masters what are you doing to sensitize not only lawyers and those in the law profession but ghanaian citizens about your cause and what you think should be done in terms of law education in the country we have been to every media house every radio station we have initiated the conversation through our allies at the media houses and the news station and then once the conversation is initiated we are invited um to speak we started our facebook and our twitter platforms to keep not just law students but everyone else abreast of what's going on we have initiated a legal action in my name and four others we have sued the general legal council and professor azar professor asari a florida-based ghanaian academic should be commended in fact in any of his public engagements and all of his social media literally every single thing he puts out it could literally be a happy birthday message and he will end it with 128 over 1820 is a scam and a sham and must be challenged something to that effect and so he's not the only one we have made sure that we have engaged you know the the general public through the media as much as we can we have written articles we have literally every avenue that is possible to us we have explored i mentioned we were in parliament two weeks ago and parliament has taken up the matter we also have a court case and so currently we are in limbo we are waiting for a date of the hearing to be set and we are waiting for parliament to get back to us with its report and recommendations to the general legal council and so until that happens we cannot hog the media space any longer because nothing is really going on with us but I can tell you that in the past, if there is an avenue that has to be explored, we have explored it. So how would you describe the coverage of your protest 
a few weeks ago. How do you describe that coverage? Was it good coverage? We did notice that the BBC and others also mentioned that protest as well. Yes, it was. It was good coverage. And we were lucky, actually. We were very lucky. We wouldn't have gotten that great coverage without the help of the police, to be honest. We have to express our gratitude to them. So what happened was, in Ghana, you don't need permission from the police to embark on a protest. What you need to do is to notify them at least five days ahead of the protest so that they can make preparations for you. Our protest was basically against the powers that be in this country. When we sent our notification to the police, they called us a few days later. We sent the notification 10 days ahead of time, even though the law requires five days notice. We sent it 10 days ahead of time. And they called us a few days afterwards to tell us that we shouldn't hold the protest on the day that we had intended when we had you know, put up our billboards all over town. Then we listened to everything they had to say, we left. Then we wrote back to them saying that we have taken everything they said under consideration, but unfortunately we are determined to proceed with our protest you know, on the day that we indicated. Now the option available to the police was that they should have gone to the high court and sought an injunction or an order from the court directed at us not to proceed with their protest. They didn't do that. Instead, they came to the site of the protest on the morning of the protest to threaten us with arrest, saying that if we went ahead, we would see, etc., etc. And then we said, listen, the law requires us to notify you five days ahead of time. We have notified you 10 days ahead of time. There is really nothing that you can say or do that is going to stop us from continuing this protest. And then they said, okay, they have heard and that we'll see. We marched to the high court then we marched to the Attorney General's department. We marched to the Ghana Bar Association. And then from the Ghana Bar Association, we were marching to the presidency to hand over our petition. We got word that the president was aware of the protest and had instructed the chief of staff to receive us because he wasn't in Accra at the moment. So the chief of staff was on his way to receive us. And when we got to, I, I don't know how well you know Ghana, but if whoever knows Ghana knows that from Afrikiko, to the presidency is only about say one kilometer so we're at the Afrikiko junction when the police we saw that the police had parked their armored vehicles you know as though we were planning a coup d'etat or something and then we told all of our people who were marching with us to sit on the ground as a non-threatening symbolic gesture so everybody sat on the ground and then we the leaders went to engage the police they said they won't allow us to go we said okay fine if you won't allow the, the mass people, the numbers to go because it's a security zone, then allow the leaders to go because the president is aware that we are coming. They said, no, they won't allow us. Fortunately for us, as we were engaging them, there were media people, plain clothed media people among us. So they witnessed everything. And as we were engaging them, the police commander who we had you know, sent our notification to and had sat in the meeting with, ordered his men to fire on us and um, fire rubber bullets and hot water cannons, you know, into the crowd to disperse us. And so they started firing rubber bullets at us, started with the water cannons and, you know, people started to run away. And the entire view, if you had a camera, the entire view was appalling. It was so appalling that somebody came from the Canadian embassy to tell us that the, the Canadian high commission was offering us refuge at, you know, in front of the high commission. And so we told everybody, you know, to go and wait for us at the Canadian High Commission. As they were going, we saw the chief of staff approach the police people and tell them that he is expecting us. So the police commander should allow us to go. He said no. And he continued. He told the officers to continue firing on us. And there were media people, there, some of whom were, were shot by these rubber bullets, etc., etc. And so because they were present at the scene... The entire narrative became law students brutalized by police. Everything about the petition sort of came in second. The narrative was basically what the police people had done to us. Our leaders, there were about 20 leaders of the demonstration, 13 of whom were arrested by the police. And so it sort of blew the protest up to a level that it wouldn't have gotten to if the police had simply let us march to parliament. Since we did our protest, there has been, I think there's been about three or four demonstrations since then, none of which 
got the media attention that ours got. And the only reason why we got the media... And so now everybody wants to know, ah, why were they marching? And why did the police do that? And then we are invited on, you know, every radio station, every TV station, every news, you know, every media house in the country to sort of explain why we were marching in the first place and why the police didn't want us to go. And so while the, the conduct of the police was appalling it was horrible while it was horrible it was a blessing in disguise really because they helped us in ways that they could not possibly have imagined look it would have been so easy for the political class to ignore us if they were so inclined if they were inclined to ignore us then they could have ignored us if we had just been allowed to go but because of you know the level at which you know the thing blew up it was impossible to ignore and so i mean they, they helped us the, the media coverage the media coverage has been has been excellent since then i have to give props to the the media houses who worked hard to ensure that you know our voices were heard so one last question and a kind of a side question and something i've been curious about so some in the legal profession have questioned the use of these wigs so as you as you know when you're a barrister, you wear a wig. And this is something that's very curious because it originated during the colonial era. And so what are your thoughts on these wigs? Yes. And do you think it's time to do away with these colonial era customs and, and dress? Yes, for practical reasons, yes. But I honestly don't think it's so much of a big deal. So let me, let me, let me explain why. I think it is time to do away with it. The temperatures in this country are insane. The sun and the humidity is intense. And a lot of these courts do not have, you know, functional ACs. Their ACs are sometimes broken down, etc., etc. There's a genuine and there's a valid argument for requiring that these characteristics of the colonial era or the things that the colonial masters left us be done away with. And there's also a psychological element to it. Why are we still maintaining, you know, these things from the colonial era? I mean... The United States did very, very well in making sure that all of the links to their colonial masters disappeared as soon as they could make them disappear. But we are sort of, you know, intensely holding on to them. But at the same time, whether or not a judge wears a wig, I don't think it has any practical significance to, you know, his determination of a case or the work that he does. I think that sometimes we give it too much attention. If the regulators want the judges to wear the wig, then they should wear the wig. I think that they should do away with it, but I also don't think we should accord it as much importance in our discourse we are giving it. Thank you, Prince, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I have been speaking with Prince Ganaku. Prince is one of the founders of the Ghana National Association of Law Students and an advocate for liberalizing law education in Ghana. The views expressed in this interview are the guests on and do not necessarily reflect those of leaders of Africa and the leaders of Africa Institute. Do you have thoughts on effort to ensure adequate law education? We want to hear from you. Share your comments and questions at your voice at leadersofafrica.org. To learn more about Leaders of Africa, visit our website, leadersofafrica.org, and follow us on social media. And that is all for this episode of Leaders Voices from Leaders of Africa. Thank you for joining us. Until next time. Thank you.